When Marty Essen travels to photograph wildlife, he often finds that nature gives him a little more than he bargained for. And if you can imagine a front-end loader lifting gravel and then dumping it on shore, that's what the hippo did to us. Coming up, Marty explains why he really likes the kinds of critters that make some people cringe. Like, did you know that the saliva from vampire bats in Belize has special properties to help treat hemophiliacs? Here you have a little creature that some people might want to wipe off the face of the planet that is actually saving lives of humans all over the world. And friends from both sides of the border in Northern Ireland take listener calls to help plan a vacation to the Emerald Isle. They'll also let us in on what you're likely to hear the Irish talking about in the pubs. Well, it's the first time in my lifetime that people are beginning to talk about a united Ireland in a positive way and a way that it could happen. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The scenery is green as far as the eye can see, and the land is filled with stories from centuries past, as if they happened just last month. And the people you'll meet, they're eager for friendly conversation. It's easy to understand why Ireland is such a favorite vacation destination. In just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves, tour guides from some of Ireland's northern counties will take your calls at 877-333-7425 to help you plan a family vacation to their Emerald Isle home. Wildlife photographer Marty Essen likes to learn the stories of the birds and animals who live in the places where he camps out. Sometimes it gets him into situations that you can only laugh about after you return home. He joins us now to report on a few of the more memorable encounters he's had in the world's wildest places. Marty, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Good to be on your show. If I want to travel and appreciate nature, what kind of prerequisites are there? What sort of knowledge should I have before I leave home to appreciate uh, all these great things I might be able to see? What I did is I picked up every book I could find on wildlife in that particular area because I wanted to know what I was going to see. Uh, once I got to that particular area of the world. But it was amazing that no matter how much research I did ahead of time, nature always had a surprise for me that I didn't expect. And that's kind of the fun part. Once you got there? Once I got there. You know, a lot of these rainforest regions, whether it be Costa Rica or especially when I was in Borneo, it's such an under-researched area. Uh, They're still discovering hundreds of new species every single year. And so, you know, sometimes you just don't know where I, I was in Borneo and we see this little snake on the ground and I'm with a guide from the Desun Sigma tribe who was born in the rainforest and lived there his entire life. And he was probably about 50 years old. And we come across the snake and before I touch it, I call him over and he looks at it and he says, worm snake, harmless. And so I reach down and I pick up a little snake and it bites me a couple times in the finger, but it's a small snake and it can't quite break my skin. And I take a couple pictures of it and I put it down and I don't think anything of it till I'm back in Montana and I'm working on my chapter doing my post-trip research and matched up the photo with a book and it turned out to be a venomous banded coral snake that was gnawing on my finger. So sometimes and it didn't it break the skin, didn't so you were lucky. The skin, so I was lucky. But you know, so even when you're with a guide, sometimes when you're in a remote area, you know, you're both. Everybody's learning at the same time. I was so charmed by the cute little brown, blunt-headed vine snake. Oh, that was that was a really cool find. That was in Costa Rica. Uh, we were out on a night hike, uh-huh. and you know, I'm looking around, and this the daintiest little snake I'd ever seen. It's probably about maybe a foot and a half long, but it was skinnier than a pencil. But the head is like too big for its body. That's how it gets the name blunt-headed snake. 
So I'm trying to take a picture of it, and I can't quite get my camera to focus where it is. And so I turn to my guide and you know, ask him, is it venomous? And he says, well, it might be rear-fanged venomous. But being a rear-fanged snake generally means, unless you're in Africa, generally rear-fanged snakes aren't very venomous. It's just mild venom. So I picked the snake up, and he was very docile. I handed my camera to my wife, and Deb took the photo of me. And that's one of the photos I have in my book, Endangered Edens, of me holding this dainty little snake. And just moderately venomous. Yeah, just moderately venomous. Wildlife photographer Marty Essence, a frequent speaker on college campuses, with stories of what the natural world has taught him all around the planet. He's written Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, and his latest book features the Alaskan Arctic, Florida's Everglades, Costa Rica, and Puerto Rico. It's called Endangered Edens. His website is martyessen.com, and that's spelled E-S-S-E-N. So you've had some incredible adventures you've written about. One of my favorites was canoeing down the Zambezi River in Zimbabwe. And then you hit what you thought was a rock. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, we had spent five days hiking across Manipools National Park, a 53-mile hike. And as we're hiking, we see these giant Nile crocodiles along the riverbank, and we see all these hippos in the water. And uh, after we finish this hike, we're going to get into canoes, and we're going to head down the Zambezi River on a three-day canoe trip, basically retracing our tracks. And my wife and I, and there were two other couples with us, we were all real nervous about this portion of the trip. And our guide, sensing how nervous we were, he sat us down. He said, listen, I've been taking people down the Zambezi River for 16 years. Never once have we had anyone attacked by an animal. Sit back, relax. You'll be surprised how safe and easy this trip is going to be. And so we get into canoes, five canoes and all, and we head down the Zambezi River. And immediately we come across this barricade of hippos. And the hippos, they're snorting and they're roaring. And I'm wondering, how are we going to get past these hippos? What's a barricade? Is that is that like the word for a herd? Or are you well, talking about a barricade across the river? Bar- there was this line of hippos that were in our way. Right there, crossing the river. Yeah, okay. right across the river. And, but as we get closer, the hippos sink underneath the water. And then we canoe right over them with our hearts just pounding. And your guide is saying, relax? Relax. Seriously? (laughs) And then then we come to a part of the river where there aren't any hippos. And one of the rules with canoeing with hippos is you always want to be in deep water. And deep water is right against the riverbank at this point of the river. So we're right against the riverbank. My wife and I are in the second to the last canoe and just enjoying this beautiful sunny day. And all of a sudden we feel this bump. And we're both thinking, well, maybe we hit a rock. Next thing you know, we're six feet up in the air. The hippo had come underneath us, bit the canoe dead center in the middle of the canoe. Its lower tusk went right through the bottom of the canoe. Its top jaw came over and snapped the gunwale. And if you can imagine a front-end loader lifting gravel and then dumping it on shore, that's what the hippo did to us. You know, I can still see it in my mind in slow motion as it happens. We go up in the air and I fly out of the canoe first. And then Deb flies out of the canoe and she hits the ground with this eerie thud. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's dead. And I run up to her. Deb, are you okay? Are you okay? And she gets up. And then we remember the hippo and we wheel toward the water and the hippo drops the canoe and then melts back into the river. You also had a guide who was a little sloppy up in the Arctic uh, on, on a river trip. Tell us about oh, that. Yeah, that was up in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And, you know, I've been with some of the best guides in the world, I think. But this guide, 
Boy, you know, he just... You're rafting down this river. Yeah, we're taking a canoe down the Jago River, and we're going basically from the Brooks Range Mountains out to the Arctic Ocean. And you called it a braided river. What does that mean? It's a braided river, and what that means is the river will break off into smaller channels. And then come back together. And then come so back like together. Braiding. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, you know, I, th- I think our guide that we had there had been guiding way too many years. And he was basically in for it for himself and not necessarily for his clients. You know, my wife and I are experienced canoers, but we're not great fast canoers. And the whole idea for me when I'm in an area is you go slow and, and you enjoy. Uh, not, it's not a race. Yeah, there was one scary moment where... He gets ahead of us, and we find ourselves all alone on this braided river. And if we take the wrong braid, I mean, we're up in the Arctic, and there is you know, no one up there. How are they going to find us as we're going on these braids? It's not like you can see from so braid to braid. So that would be a scary moment when you don't have your guide within sight. With, when you don't have your guide you within sight. you got to go with the flow y- on yeah. the river. And, you know, and what do you do? I mean, it's right. not, it's not so like what, there what are, happened? Well, we happened to take the right braid and caught up with them and and basically said, don't ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're adventuring through some of the most gorgeous places on the planet with Marty Essen. His book is Endangered Edens and Cool Creatures Hot Planet. Marty, you've got in your books, it seems you love to take photographs of critters. Most of them are not the kind of critters you'd want to cuddle up with in bed. I mean, or on the sofa. These are like you know, lizards and and snakes and creepy things. Is there something that you find attractive for these kind of animals? Well, you know, it's just, I I don't think animals like that necessarily have an advocate. And I try to be an advocate for them. I mean, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, was kind of the original advocate for Mm -hmm. uh, creeping, crawly creatures. You know, and I do have a lot of bird life and a lot of fuzzy and and beautiful creatures in my books as well. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I think a good example is a vampire bat. When we were in Belize in my first book, Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, we go into this cave that's filled with vampire bats. And they're little guys. They're only about two inches long. You know, one of the problems with vampire bats is wherever humans move, they tend to want to kill off all the vampire bats. Well, it turns out that vampire bats have the most effective anticoagulant known to man in their saliva. Scientists have taken this anticoagulant and they've turned it into a life-saving heart drug. And you'll love this name. It's called Draculin. And so Draculin is given to heart patients, people who have had heart attacks or strokes. So here you have a little creature that some people might want to wipe off the face of the planet that is actually saving lives of humans all over the world. There are also venomous snakes that they're using for maybe things like diabetes and things like that. So there's just a lot of different things that can come from these animals. Marty, I understand that you give a talk around the world in 90 minutes uh, on campuses all over the country, just uh, turning people onto the wonders of nature. Out of all the images you show and the stories you tell, what's the one that you really enjoy that, that really gets a fun reaction? Well, I think the most fun one is I'm in Zimbabwe, and I catch the biggest snake I've ever caught in my life, or ever will catch in my life. I wouldn't dare try anything bigger. It's about a ten and a half foot long rock python, and it takes me several minutes to catch a snake, and it's snapping at me. Now, does that mean you're just like running through the scrub brush, grabbing it? Well, no, he's kind of out in the open on a riverbank, okay. And so he's coiled up in a defensive uh, position, and I'm trying to grab it by its neck, and it's snapping out at me, and I'm kind of doing the Steve Irwin thing, jumping backwards with my hands in the air. Eventually, I catch it, 
And, uh, you know, I just hold it for a few moments. And then the picture that gets everybody in the show is the last picture of me giving the snake a great big kiss on the head. <laughs> and I can see the audience and, and, and people covering their eyes when this picture is up on the big screen. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marty Essen about uh, his book, Endangered Edens. Uh, we haven't talked about penguins yet. Let's finish just with a, a story of a one of your encounters with a penguin. You know, the great thing about going to, down to Antarctica is the animals do not have a natural fear of people. And so we could get really close to the animals down there, although you know there were always rules we couldn't get. We had to stay 15 feet away, but they could approach us as close as they wanted to. So, yeah, we'd have penguins coming up to us, and uh, they would pull on our shoelaces or, or pull on our pants legs. Then if you walked away, they'd follow you as if you were mom. One of the neat things that we got to watch was a penguin swimming lesson. And who knew penguins needed to learn how to swim? But we're watching these penguin chicks, and they were in this little pond or little pool uh, at the edge of a glacier, and they'd stick their head underneath the water, and they'd hold it for about 10 seconds, and then they would come up, and then they would joyfully run around and announce their accomplishment to the other penguins. It was just adorable. They were so just wonderful to watch, and we were just cracking up. Marty Essen, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Rick. We are going on that safari. See the lions from my body. Hope we do not get them malady. It's a party time. You can hear more from Marty Essen in the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. Look for program number 456 from September 2016. Up next, we'll help you plan a getaway to Ireland with your calls to 877-333-RICK. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Hello, my name is Barry Maloney from County Cork on the south coast of Ireland. I've a good one about uh, Irish, Scottish, English. Mm-hmm. It's a quote by George Orwell. kind of sums it up. He said, the English are not happy unless they're miserable. The Irish are not at peace unless they're at war. And the Scots are not at home unless they're abroad. Well, that's thought-provoking. So There's some truth to that. (laughs) Did you know that the number of Americans who claim some Irish ancestry is actually seven times larger than the number of people who live in Ireland today? Over the years, I've found that the type of welcome you can expect to find as a visitor to Ireland makes it a first-rate destination no matter where your grandparents were born. To update us on what's going on this year in Ireland and to help you plan an Irish vacation, we've imported tour guides Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Stephen, Pascal, welcome. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. Great to be here. Pascal, you live in Monaghan in Ulster. What is Ulster exactly? There's four provinces in Ireland, Rick. Ulster, Leinster, Munster and Connacht. I oh. live up in Ulster. And when a lot of people hear of Ulster, they automatically think of maybe Northern Ireland. Right, because I think of it as synonymous with Northern yeah. Ireland. Well, there's six counties in Northern Ireland, but three counties that are also in the Republic. There's nine counties altogether in Ulster. Okay, so you're in one of the three that happen to be in the Republic. That's right. There's Donegal, Cavan, and Monaghan that so, is in the Republic. So you're from Ulster, but as part of the Republic of Ireland, does that mean it's more of a Catholic population it, instead it of a Protestant? It would be, yes, yeah. It was. That's why they got chopped yeah. off, remember, because at the start... In 1921, the the Unionists, who would be mostly Protestant, of course, they wanted Ulster to stay part of the United Kingdom. 
But the British said to them, well, that's not really going to be possible because the majority of people in Ulster are Catholic. Well, so they well, chopped so they off the three big Catholic sort of parts. They gerrymandered it and created yeah. a Protestant right, Ulster. Yeah. yeah. Just had to get that in. That's very important. Well, that is. And that's a comp- and when you go to Ireland, it sounds a little wonkish to some people, but it really behooves you to understand what are the dynamics here with British imperialism and the Irish Republic, you know, Northern Ireland and what's Catholic, what's Protestant. And so much of this history is so exciting and it just happened a hundred years ago. Yeah. Stephen McPhillamy, you're you're from the north, from Derry. You studied in Donegal and you run an inn in Dingle, a town many of us know and love. Uh, the three Ds, uh, each one is interesting. Give us a little thumbnail sketch of where you were raised, where you went to school and where you live and work now. Yeah, well, I was brought up in uh, Derry and I went all over then to Donegal to live. So I would have spent a lot of my teenage years there. I went to school there. My accent would be Donegal. Not mm. that any listener would know the difference in a Donegal or Derry accent necessarily, but if you live there, there's a big one. And Donegal's the far north of the Republic. Yeah, and then that's where it gets kind of ironic because sometimes people would say to me, are you from the north of Ireland or are you from the south of Ireland? And I'd say, well, I suppose I went to school in the south of Ireland, but it was further north than northern Ireland. <laughs> So, that's right. You know, so because this bloody for, what is it called? Bloody Forland. Bloody Forland is way up there in way the north up of Donegal. Way up at the top, but it's uh, the Republic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's further north than most parts of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So people sometimes think of it like a North Korea, South Korea style scenario, where it's, right. there's a lot more to not it quite, than that. Not quite that no. simple. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was lucky enough to have the ability to live in Donegal, Derry, embrace the identity of both those places, which are quite similar, though, in many ways, because a lot of people in in Derry. Even by the fact that I'm calling it Derry implies that we wish for it to join with the Republic of Ireland. As opposed to London Derry, As opposed which to London is Derry, what which... a combatant on the other side would always yeah. call it. Yeah, if you're a unionist or a Protestant person, you generally would call it London Derry. But there's many Protestants in Donegal too, as there is in Pascal's part of uh, the Republic. Uh-huh. Monaghan and Cavan and Donegal have disproportionate amounts of Protestant people who... In the Catholic Republic. Yeah, mm-hmm. because uh, you know when the Republic of Ireland was formed, well, it was the Irish Free State first, Mm-hmm. Uh, many Protestants felt that it was going to be a cold house for them, mm-hmm. that their civil and uh, religious liberties wouldn't be respected because of Catholic teaching. And I have to say, in fairness to them, that's probably what happened because the Irish Free State really did become a almost like a theocracy, like at the Catholic Church's teachings became part so of the if, Constitution. If you happen to be Protestant, this is just sort of bad news. It's, yeah, you, so you have I, Catholics making your moral laws and raising your kids in their schools. And yes, so and many Protestants left and went to the north, you know, mm-hmm. to Northern Ireland. But some would have stayed along the border where we're from. So where we both grew up, Pascal in Monaghan, me in Donegal, there would have been separate schools for Protestant kids, you know, mm-hmm. and quite often they were big farmers as well because that would have been their tradition when they would have come over in the 1600s, their ancestors would have taken the farms. Amazing that heritage would last for centuries and to this century still be uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. the story. Pascal, when you're, when you're thinking about the relations between North Ireland and, and the Republic, of course, Ireland went through the horrible troubles and then seems to me things are pretty darn good now. Oh, what absolutely. Is, what is the status now with, quote, the troubles? Well, since the Good Friday Agreement only a little over 15 years ago, it's been such a fantastic change. The visual things are gone as in the big checkpoints at the border and that. The army barracks, that's all gone. You cross over now from the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland, you wouldn't even know you crossed over. There's very few little telltale signs, you know. Mm -hmm. It's peaceful now. It's a great place to go. Like Northern Ireland wouldn't have been a place you would have been even thinking tourism would be there. Why would people want to come here? It was like a war zone. Now it's fantastic. It's booming. So there's tourism is booming in the north. It really is, yeah. I think at the moment there's up until 15 new hotels being built in Belfast at the moment. Now, you know, all over the the Western world right now, it seems to be there's a shift to the right with the fear of, of terrorism and, and refugees and immigrants and so on. 
Britain had Brexit, of course, the United States is President Trump. What's the tenor of things in Ireland as far as this dynamic? Well, I suppose because we sort of grew up with the fear of terrorism all my life and Stephen's life and that there, we kind of got immune to it. Like, it was crazy to think that at one time in Northern Ireland there would be a car bomb going off once a week. Right. And you wouldn't have really, you know, as long as none of your friends or family were involved, you got immune to it. So we can sympathise with the rest of Europe and the world that's in fear at the moment, you know. But you have to try and push through it and still go to these places and keep on travelling. So keep a grip. Don't, yeah, don't keep lose a grip. grip and the media now with like social media and stuff, things go around the world so quick and make things worse than they are, you know? So you have less politicians taking advantage of that fear and that overreaction, you might say, in Ireland because you've lived with it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So maybe in a country that's never had this problem, a a politician could come in and take advantage of the fear. Absolutely. And in your country, you know you're keeping it in perspective. It's a tragedy, but so is somebody dying in a car wreck. Exactly, yes, that's right, yeah. And we yeah. haven't had that big lurch to the right either, the Republic of Ireland in particular. Yeah. Most people are, would be centre-left, let's say, or right. there's no huge... Um, you don't have a Marine Le Pen against, kind of thing. Not at all. No. Or something. I, I, I think that's where we can be proud of ourselves in Ireland. You know. Well, you've lived through it. That's the amazing thing. And travelling in Ireland, you talk to people who really have found a way to live yes. together, and that is something Ireland can be proud of. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick. And... Uh, we're going to get to your calls in a minute. Our phone number is 877-3337-425. But before we do it, I just want to find out the Irish perspective on Brexit. Uh, England last year voted to leave the European Union. You know, Ireland is in the European Union and staying there. The interesting issue to me is Northern Ireland, which is part of uh, Great Britain. And with this Brexit vote, North Ireland is leaving the EU does that open up any issues of Northern it, Ireland sticking lot, with the a lot Republic? Of, a lot of issues, Rick. It's, um, from someone like myself and Stephen who's living on the border, like I said earlier, you can drive across the border now, you wouldn't know the difference, you know? But they're talking about you know, putting checkpoints back on the border or, you know, a soft border. We don't know. And I don't think anybody has a plan in and place. And Irish people happen. don't have much of a choice on that. This well, is we, a, we, we exactly. will have no choice of it whatsoever. But remember, the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain with the yeah. European yeah. Union. As did Scotland. As Scotland, did Scotland and Northern Ireland, yeah. uh, as part of Great Britain, voted to stay with the EU, but you were outvoted That's correct. Uh, by other dimensions of that populace. But here's why it's interesting from a potential Irish reunification point of view. Let's say you were a Protestant person in Belfast and you weren't really interested in joining with the Republic of Ireland for the last part of your life, but you really did like being part of the European Union because of all the positive benefits it may have brought yeah. you. And now, if you want to be part of the European Union and you, li- and you want to live in Belfast, your only way to do that is to join with the Republic of Ireland. That's I'm right. not saying that's going to happen or anything. No, but, but, but I can see that that all of a sudden shines a different light on this. Somebody could have been hell-bent on not joining the Republic when they were a child, but that's when more people were going to church and there was more of an economic difference yes. between the wealthy people of the North and the struggling people in the Republic. Yes. Now the economic difference is It's equal. completely reversed. It's reversed. Well, yeah, Republic of Ireland is way ahead in terms of so economy. So if you're, if you're in the North of Ireland, you grew up thinking we're the lucky rich people and they're the poor buggers. Now you're the one who's struggling and you don't have that high stakes of religion because it's not, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like uh, there's still a Catholic heritage in Ireland, but it's probably not as extreme as it was a generation yeah, I, ago. I think oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So there's less downside, there's more upside. Uh, there's a, a impetus now as England is, is taking itself out of the European Union for Northern Ireland to consider 
uniting the Emerald Island. Well, it's it's but, a, it's, but the downside of that it it could reignite the troubles. That's the fear. That's, yeah. That that is the fear. But I don't think the neither side that was at war would have the support of the local people. You know, so it would never go back to the as bad as it was. So it is so good now to be done with the troubles. Oh, that yes. you're not worried about one bomb radicalizing no, the middle. No, no, no. Thank um, God. It, it'll never go back as bad. But it's the first time in my lifetime that people are beginning to talk about a united Ireland in a positive way and a way that it could happen. This you know? is fascinating. Now, three quick questions. I know life's not perfect, but as far as the choices available, Ireland, the Republic, seems to be happy to stay with the EU. And with the euro? Yes. yes. That's so. yeah. yeah. And then the economy. You were famously bad, then you were the Celtic Tiger, famously good, then that sort of tanked. Where are you now? We're on the way back up again, yeah. I think it's fair to say. There's definitely green shoots there. You can see the, the spending's back, people's beginning to... So the confidence level yes, is the up. Confidence yeah. level and is unemployment more. has dropped dramatically as well. Now, you, you used to have 100,000 Polish immigrants doing your labor when you were too rich to do your own garden. Now, <laughs> those Poles are, I understand, they're moved over to England. Yeah, but some of them are still there now and they have children too who have Irish accents now, you see. so <laughs> They've, they've so. made Ireland their home. But, yeah. are, are you importing labour or exporting labour? The people who emigrated, the young people of Ireland who emigrated, who went off to Australia and New Zealand, that we're looking for them to come home now, you okay. know, and there's, there's a lot of incentives to take people back to Ireland. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick about Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Gary's on the line from Georgetown in Texas. Gary, thanks for your call. Hello. I'm starting to look into a trip to Ireland uh, about a month, a month and a half long. Would like to stay in about four or five locations um, around the country. Um, And I'm sort of looking for suggestions on what would make good uh, base cities. You know, I'm sort of thinking of Dublin and Kilkenny, but would also like some ideas on the southwest, the west, and the northwest. I love that idea. Let's say you got four weeks, you got four stops, you're not going to be running around crazy. You want to make four home bases with a rental car and a side trip from there. Pascal, Stephen, what are your ideas on those? Well, well Kilkenny would be a very good stop. You get accommodation in Kilkenny and you have a lot of interesting day trips out of Kilkenny. You can go over to the, the Rock of Cashel, you could do Glendalough in Wicklow. Lots of places you could go from Kilkenny and then move on down to the likes of Dingle. Again, Dingle's a fantastic base. You've got the Slayhead Drive, the Ring of Kerry. You can go up to the Cliffs of Moher. I would say Kilkenny, Dingle, and then up to Galway, and then over maybe to Derry in Northern Ireland. Derry would be good also, yeah. or, or Portrush. Or Portrush as well, yes. So that's yeah. talking about Northern Ireland. And uh, Gary, remember there's a lot of charming stops up in the north that give you a whole different dimension of Ireland. And really, if you have a month in Ireland, a trip's not complete oh, unless you do spend some time oh, in Oh, definitely north. go up to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland stunningly beautiful. So Stephen, we've got Dublin, uh, for obvious reasons, Kilkenny as a home base for places on the south coast, including Kinsale? Oh, Kinsale as well, yeah, down Kinsale, in Cork, yeah. yes. And yeah. then Dingle for the southwest, Galway for the west, and then Derry or Portrush. Yeah, yeah Derry. Port Rush or like uh, even Belfast if you're interested but I don't know if you want to go to the big cities or not but the great thing these days too now is that I call it the Airbnb culture and little places that never had accommodation on offer before now do you know everyone's renting out their room or their spare cabin or their granny's house or something on various different websites so you can get a good affordable place for maybe two or three weeks like to stay in a and b for a month is going to cost you a fortune. So you'll do better for extended stays one week to go on Airbnb. Right? Yeah, and, and you'd be self-catering then. You'd cater yeah. for yourself or cook your own meals. 
Right. And that was sort of the second question. You know, I, I, I'm aware of, um, you know, from traveling uh, of like Airbnb and VRBO, et cetera. But I was wondering if there are any more uh, local Irish uh, sites that uh, handle uh, vacation rentals that might be worthwhile checking into. Well, there's there's the official one there. The, I think it's discoverireland.com. It's a run by the Irish Tourist Board. But to be honest with you, the best options and the cheapest options will be on the generic big international sites. So that's all the Irish accommodation owners are using those. All right, Gary, does that give you some ideas? Yes, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, good. Oh, well, you're lucky to have a month for Ireland. Have a wonderful time. Enjoy your well, trip. I plan on it. Thank you. Thank all you. Right. Take care. Bye. Scott's calling in from Chicago. Scott, do you have some dreams about going to Ireland? Oh, uh, actually, I'm planning a trip back. Uh, it's our 10-year anniversary back to Ireland. And uh, last time we drove south, Dublin to Galway. Uh, this time we want to visit Northern Ireland and Northwest Ireland, uh, thinking Belfast to Clifton. And I was wondering if there's any recommendations for the must-see and the backdoor sites. Well, Pat, Patrick and Stephen are both from the North area, so you guys must have some ideas. We'll definitely go up to Belfast City. Belfast City, again, as I say, it's, it's, it's really, really exciting times there at the moment, you know. You have the Titanic Centre, that's a fantastic exhibition. Then take the Antrim Coast Drive up to the Carrickery Rope Bridge, the Giant's Causeway, all right off over Antrim, and then finish and the, off... The whiskey. Oh, the Bushmills whiskey, you can't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Bushmills whiskey, you can try yeah, that. Yeah, so you, you got the, the fascinating little rope bridge that gets yeah, you just a good charge. look at the dramatic northern coast. Yes. You've got the famous Bushmills whiskey. You've got the, the Giant's ca- Causeway. The Giant's Causeway with these basalt eight-sided uh, columns, that this mythic bridge that went to Scotland. And then you've got the castle that fell halfway into Dunluce the sea. Castle. Yes. Dunluce Castle. Dunluce Castle. Beautiful yeah. places to see. And I think Portrush has got a sort of a quirky, old-fashioned beach resort kind of Blackpool feel to it. It to has me. indeed. It has indeed. And, and a, a county that doesn't get much visitors either but really should is County Donegal. Explore up, especially if you're driving yourself, drive up around Donegal, up, up around the Glenties and that. Now, Stephen, you, you, you went to school in Donegal. What would you say is the highlights of Donegal? Well, Donegal, I would say the highlights there would be yeah, the cliffs that Pascal just mentioned, Sleeve League. They're like three times higher than the cliffs of Moher. Absolutely stunning. Um, yeah. Oh, that's something. And you can just get that same sort of uh, butterflies in your stomach as you get close to the edge. Yeah, and there's uh, but there's 5,000 less people there. Like, there's literally 10 people there, whereas the Cliffs of Moher could have 5,000. Right. So it's really remote. There's lovely mountains there. and the, Donegal is a place where sometimes people say, I want to go on a day trip to Donegal. It's not a place for a day trip. It's no. just you're wasting your time because it's yeah. just... I took a group of English people there once on a day trip, and at the end they said, um, all we saw was endless peat bog, you know? <laughs> but they were, they were missing the point. Like, you had to, you'd have to stay there for two or three days, meet the local people, go after the local pubs and see, get, hear the music, go over to the west of Donegal, which is Irish-speaking, that's where Enya comes from, the famous singer, so there's a real good musical culture there. Um, you can go up to Malin Head, which is the most northerly point of Ireland, if you like to go out for a nice scenic drive or go for a hike up there. I remember that was sort of the um, the brutal economy up there. Everything was so depressed and everybody was on the dole. What, what's the situation now for the economy of Donegal? Well, the economy for Donegal is, is we don't see all the Facebooks and the Googles and all the big companies that Dublin gets or we don't get all these American corporations really. So it's a tough uh, tough slog economically up there. Right. There'd be a lot, a lot of young people still emigrating. So, like the point about the EU, you know, we're very pro-EU in Ireland, except a lot of us are in places like Donegal are thinking, well, what has the EU done for us? Right. You know, so, Life yeah. is still tough there, but conversely, or on the other side of the coin, uh, 
life is very traditional and you can absolutely. settle in and yes. stay a couple of days in a little town and get to know the people in the pub. Yeah, it's absolutely. a very authentic experience. What's the thing? You go to the pub one night and you're a guest and the next night... You're a regular. You're, you're a, a regular. local. <laughs> yeah. That's the goal, Scott. Become a local. It takes two nights. Do try and go to Donegal Town if you can and see that there's a great O'Donnell castle there. The O'Donnells were the ancient chieftains of Donegal. So if you're interested in military history or the the colonization of Ireland and all that era, like the, do try and check out Donegal Town and the castle that's there. Does that help you, Scott? Absolutely. Thank you very much. I, I love the information on, on Donegal. I was, yeah. That was one of the areas that I was kind of stuck on, you know, what to see. I think you're smart to oh. not succumb to the temptation to try to visit everything on the island and just uh, stick to that northern area on this trip. Give us a ring when you're done. Have a good trip. Thank you very much. There's more with Stephen and Pascoe and your calls on visiting Ireland just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. By the way, Stephen's back with us again next week when more of our friends from Ireland join us for a full hour's St. Patrick's Day celebration. We'll find out what traditional Irish music tells you about their culture and history. We'll learn why you should add Belfast to your itinerary. And our friends explain to us what it really means to be Irish. We're helping you plan a trip to Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves, or at least to encourage you to dream about it. Tour guides Pasco Fitzpatrick and Stephen McPhillamy are taking your calls at 877-333-7425. And Nancy's calling in from Venice in Florida. Nancy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Um, my friend and I uh, from college are going to be traveling in Ireland in May, and we're great James Joyce fans. We're wondering about tours, especially James Joyce tours, but maybe other literary tours. Can your guests help me with that? It's funny you ask, actually, because I have a love-hate relationship with James Joyce. I'm trying to become a fan because to say you're not a fan in Ireland is like blasphemy. People <laughs> look at you as if you're some moron. It's like you're an American that doesn't like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> so I've made it a point in the last while to do what you're going to be doing, and that is to get into the Joyce culture in Ireland because it's quite vibrant. We have a colleague called uh, Joe Darcy, and he's a sort of aspiring Joycean scholar. And here's my one big recommendation for Joyce. When you get to Dublin, there's a chemist shop in the middle of town called Sweeney's, or sometimes pronounced Sweeney's, but it's spelled S-W-E-N-Y-S. And Sweeney's is mentioned in uh, Ulysses. It's where um, the main character there goes off to buy a bar of lemon soap. Oh, yes, I Uh, remember. That chemist shop is as it was 100 years ago, and it's owned now by, the I think, the Dublin Joycean Society or the Joycean Enthusiasts. They have readings of Joyce in English, German, French, and Russian, and it's the most eccentric spot you'd ever see. There, there's a guy behind the counter, with a, he looks like the, the guy from Back to the Future, the professor. He's got a big white hair, and he's got a lovely big white pharmacist jacket on. And basically, you go in, you sit down, everyone gets handed a book, and the person will stand up and say, today we're going to read from a portrait of the artist as a young man. And you just have to read. And you read until you want to stop reading, and then the person beside you continues on. The person beside you could be Vietnamese, could be American, could be anything. And everyone's just there to read Joyce. So one person reads, and it just goes around and around. And yeah, until we finish, the, we read several chapters. Yeah. And I, I do that most Saturdays when I'm in Dublin. Huh. Maybe I need to get out more, but <laughs> it's, it's just fun, and it really makes Joyce accessible and fun. So that's Swenny's. Swenny's Chemist Shop. And Pascal, what's a tip for you for people who want to enjoy, not necessarily James Joyce, but, uh, you know, Irish literature, heritage in general? Yeah, there is some fantastic day tours that are walking tours in Dublin that will take you all 
around. You get any of the tourist information shops in Dublin will have information for them. But Walking jo- tours that hit places featured in James Joyce literature. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, when I last time I was in Dublin, there's these wonderful uh, literary pub crawls. There is indeed, yeah. That's yeah. a beautiful program. They're on seven days a week. I think they start around seven thirty every night, leaving from a pub, and you can learn from the local information. That's right. They go, they go you, around different bars. You visit several bars, have yeah. several beers, and uh, local uh, actors uh, share the literary heritage. Uh, yes, that's it. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's always good fun. People, I mean, you all, I've done it several times, and it's fun. Everyone you see in the in the audience, they're all laughing and having. I love appreciation that. of it, yeah. As yeah. a matter of fact, there's two tours, I think, done by the same company. One is the musical pub That's crawl. That's right, yeah. And one is the literary pub crawl. And yeah. they're both a great evening out. Yeah, and, but these days now, too, there's an abundance of all. They're starting to spring up. Uh, literary tourism in Ireland is starting to become huge in Dublin, in particular. And uh, so there's lots of different offerings there. But now with the advent of Google, sure, you can find them pretty easily. If oh, you're yeah. yeah. And if you're out in the countryside, are there any sites that somebody who's into Irish literature uh, would want to see for sure? You can head out to uh, James Joyce's Tower out there in, in the south side of Dublin where Joyce himself used to live. Uh-huh. Lots of good uh, sites attached to Joyce himself if that's what you're looking for. Sligo would be the place to go for, for WB Yeats, yeah. He's actually, his grave is, is in Drumcliff, just a little churchyard just outside Sligo, but they have a Yeats tour in Sligo town. Sligo's a small town, so again, if you just went to the tourist information there, you get all the information. There's an interesting literary heritage from the Blasket Isles that you'll enjoy when you're yes, in, yeah. in Dingle. That's true too, yeah. There are several books written by islanders and you can take a day trip out to the island as well once you become familiar with the that's, literature. That's, that's quite evocative. It kind of gets you into the, the old-fashioned Irish lifestyle. Hey, well, Nancy, I hope that gives you some ideas. Great, thanks. And when you learn how to appreciate James Joyce, give Stephen McPhilmy a call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll see you in Swanny's chemist shop <laughs> for a reading, read, Definitely. reading the... Okay, Nancy, have fun. Thank you. Our guides today on Travel with Rick Steves are Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick, and we're taking your calls at 877-333-RICK. Karen's calling in from San Juan Capistrano in California. Hey, Karen. Hi, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so excited. We have a trip planned, a group of four of us. We're starting in Dublin and circling around to Galway, stopping in Kilkenny, Dingle and Malahide before we jump back on a flight. Since there's the four of us, we do have designated drivers, and we want to know what whiskey distilleries we should not miss. <laughs> it's good you got your designated drivers. How do you do that? Are you just taking different days that different people are designated drivers? Well, we'll probably be tossing the coin. I'm tossing not sure the coin. About that yet. Okay. <laughs> well, there's a new, probably one of the newest whiskey distilleries just after opening in Dingle. It's called Dingle Whiskey. They started brewing the whiskey five years ago, so they've actually you can only taste the whiskey now because it takes five years for it to mature before wow. it's actual whiskey. Now that's in Dingle. That's in, in the, that, that's our favorite town in the southwest. That's right. That's yeah. right. Whiskey is now a really big thing in Ireland. There's whiskey being brewed in lots of different places. There's a new whiskey museum as well in Dublin, just mm. off Grafton Street there. So you get you get the whole history of the whiskey distiller in there. And there's a family called the Teeling family, and they're like the sort of new godfathers of distilling in Ireland and. They had a distillery, I think they sold it to one of the big American distillers and they got some money in anyway. They've, they've now opened their own distillery in the middle of Dublin called the Teeling Distillery and I think it might be one of the first new distilleries in Dublin in over a century or something like that. So Now, Bushmills is up in uh, Portrush. Port, Portrush in Northern Ireland, But there's yes. another Bushmills on the south coast, isn't there? 
That's Jameson. Jameson, yeah. yeah. Well, Jameson, well, it's yeah. actually Middleton, but it's, or Middleton. Where, yeah, but it's where they make Jameson, but not Bushmills. Not there's no connection oh, okay, anymore. Okay, there. No. So there's two. Th- are, are those the two big distilleries you can Th- tour in the countryside? Those are the two biggest and most well-known distilleries. Yeah. Now, by my experience, and this is one of the tips I like to put in my guidebook in Ireland. Uh, you know, the tourists go there and they take you through and you see everything, and then you sit down and you have your tasting. Yeah. And it's really fun because there's six or eight different, uh, and uh, they take a volunteer for somebody to be the guinea pig, and you can actually sit down and, and do all the That's right. tasting. Yeah. And if you're interested in whiskey, when they ask for volunteers, you, your arm should shoot up so fast, Absolutely. It, it, it almost pops out of its yeah. socket. But that, that's what makes the, the dingle experience, I think, a little bit better because you're actually in a working distillery. You're right. actually walking through where the pots and everything are and where they're actually distilling the whiskey, you know? And this is just five years. Is this a, sort of a young generation, new kind of whiskey? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And they're very generous with their tastings there. The guys are very passionate, you know, as well. I like that when you get these young entrepreneurs ah, yeah, that yeah. know how to, they were going to do yeah. this traditional craft even better. Yeah. And uh, so, and when the whiskey tastes great, I, I actually have a cask inside there maturing at the moment because you're able to buy a cask and let right. it mature. And, and uh, How so, long does that take? Uh, legally three years. And then if you want to keep it longer, five, nine, twelve. Yeah. Would you believe it at the moment that whiskey is the one of the biggest, hottest commodities to invest in in Ireland? Is that right? There's a better return on whiskey than there is in any bank. You know, people actually <laughs> buying whiskey as an investment. As an investment. Yeah, and, and, and that might be something you want to do when you're there, you know. At all these little distilleries, you can buy little small casks, you know, for okay. five or 600 euro, and, yeah. and, and it'll be worth three or four times that when it comes to mature. But the best thing is you can just ship it to your house and put a tap in it. <laughs> you know? And then, why not? Be a party again. Yeah. Talk about the souvenir that keeps on giving. Hey, uh, apart from all these distilleries and museums and tastings, you can just go to a pub, can't you, and enjoy whiskey. We always think of, of beer in an Irish pub, but I really enjoy going into a pub and striking up a conversation and looking at the menu or whatever you call it, and there's a list of 20 different whiskeys. And each one has a distinct character. It's easier for me to enjoy the character differences in whiskey than it is in wine. Yeah, the, the connoisseur culture is developing big time in Ireland now with regards to whiskey because you're going into bars and you're getting a menu as before. There was five or six choices, right. all made by the same two or three companies. Right. Now there's maybe 50 choices. Okay. And they're comparing it with scotch and they're comparing it with, with Japanese whiskey and bourbon and Canadian whiskey. Irish whiskey, of course, is always smoother. It's distilled three times. So we like to say it's smoother. And literally it is smoother because it's not as burny. There's no peaty So there's taste. a... There's a like, like a legal difference between Irish and Scottish whiskey. It's spelled differently. It's spelled differently. And there is a, there, there's a distillation difference as well. You see, the Scottish use peat fires to malt their barley. So don't worry about the basics of that. But it basically uh-huh. means there's smoke and there's peat uh-huh. in Scotch whiskey. Whereas in Irish, there's not because we're putting ours into big copper vats. So there's no smoke ever getting near the, oh, the liquid. So the Scottish are in, in, intentionally putting that peat. Making uh, the smoke here. Smell in the smoke yeah. here, yeah. So ours is going through the process three times. There's no peat involved, no smoke. Uh, so it's much smoother. Okay. There's one there called Old Middleton, which you'll try. And don't, don't be put off by the big corporate distilleries because they're still great to go to. I really enjoy them. Yeah. Just because they happen to be owned. Like Bush Mills is now owned by Jose Cuervo, for God's sake. You know, it's, but just uh, remember, yeah. you go into the pub, you've got all the ambience of a pub, and you've got that whole dimension of Irish culture. Absolutely. And yeah. the, there's some great whiskey pubs now in Ireland. There's actually whiskey trails. They recommend going to different towns and trying. All right. Karen, you've got your work cut out for you. I, I certainly do. Thank you so much. <laughs> have fun yeah, and, and uh, treat your designated driver well. Uh, definitely. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Thanks. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Ireland with our tour guides, Stephen McPhillamy and Pascal Fitzpatrick. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. You can call us at 877-333-7425. Alan in Oakland, California has emailed us. And Alan writes, I'll be traveling to Dublin soon with my family. 
can the iconic traditional music and crack of the Irish pubs still be found in the Temple Bar area of Dublin, or is that just getting too touristy? Uh, so the crack, that's what uh, Alan is referring to. That's the Irish uh, slang for conversation and conviviality. So do you get all the great traditional music and crack in Temple Bar? That's the sort of Pioneer Square or the old uh, quarter where all the colorful pubs were. Or has that become so promoted and so touristy and so full of hen parties and stag parties and so on? Well, both those are correct. It is very touristy. If you go in there, it's probably 99% tourists. The question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Some people might like that, some might not. The music, though, is still excellent in there. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an advocate or passionate fan of the music in, in the Temple Bar area. Temple Bar. I mean, because they got so many people going in there and so much money being spent, they can afford the best musicians. No, that's a good, you know, it's a knee-jerk thing to say, ah, it's touristy, but tourism brings the money that pays the musicians, and yeah. if you get the good music, going Dingle, there, Dingle's got a lot of uh, energy because of the tourism there, too. Yeah, so a lot yeah. of the best musicians in Dublin, are, are, and in the, indeed the country, are going to Temple Bar because they're getting more gigs. Pascal, what's your take on Temple Bar? I have a sort of a love-hate relationship with Temple Bar because I like going to Temple Bar. It's fantastic music and lovely street entertainment and everything there as well. But it does sometimes on a Friday and Saturday night Mm. especially get overrun with hen parties and stag parties. And yeah, it's it, good it, advice. It's too so, sloppy for me on a weekend especially. Yeah, but during yeah. the week, absolutely, it's great to go and just soak up the atmosphere of it. And there's a few bars there that are historic. They've been there forever, even before there was tourism. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And, and they all have great music. But to really get a feel for the Irish traditional music, I think get out of the bigger cities and go into the smaller towns, you get into the, the local bars where they're not going to be over full. You can listen to the music better and even talk to the musicians themselves. Now, years ago... Ennis, Galway, Doolin, and Dingle were the yes. great towns for traditional music That's in, the, right. in the west of Ireland. And they still would be the most popular, yeah. And Doolin is, it was very strange for me, it's like four pubs in the middle of farm country or something. That still a small it. little place, yeah. still yeah. a fantastic yeah. But place. Dingle, that's yeah. this town we keep coming back yeah. to. And it's like a one sort of block of, of like four streets with a church on the top and a yeah. church in the middle and must have 10 pubs in that walk and most of them have live music every night. Every one of them would have live music and excellent, excellent musicians. I, when I'm in Dingle, I leave my bed and breakfast and I go out and I know I'm not coming back until the pubs are closed yeah. and I have no idea where I'm going to spend my time, but it's going to be fun. There's going to be people, is, there's going to be live true. music, there's going to be great beer and lifelong memories. And you can just walk in on your own and you don't need to be going in with somebody because you walk in and just... Say hi to the person next to you and you'll be chatting away. I just love that. Our guides are here to help you plan a trip to Ireland. Stephen McPhillamy hails from Derry in Northern Ireland. Stephen operates a B&B in Dingle on the west coast of the Irish Republic. And tour guide Pascal Fitzpatrick comes to us from County Monaghan. He also is the owner, director, and even one of the drivers for Fitzpatrick's Coaches for Hire. And Nicole's calling from Victoria in British Columbia. Hi, Nicole. Hi, um, we're considering Ireland as a family destination for a family trip, and so I'm wondering if you have some tips on um, kid-friendly things to do and places to see. Great question, and I just want to, we're coming off of our little uh, rave session here on pubs and beer, and when my kids were little, we would take them into the pubs, and we'd have a lot of fun, and it felt just fine. Are kids okay in pubs in Ireland? Well, the law now states after 9 p.m., no kids. After 9 p.m. After 9, so, so until 9 p.m., you can fine. go there for dinner and, and have a beer and yeah. so on with and the kids. Some of the smaller towns, they might let that go. But I do remember it is the law. So, you know, if okay. you're... If so you're, 9 o'clock. Well, that's interesting. They accommodate the families until then. 
And then it's better for, I mean, it's just yeah. legal for adults. And a lot anyway. of pubs in Dublin city centre, for example, just wouldn't let kids in after nine. No, no chance and even coming no. up close to it, no way. Let's talk about uh, family-friendly activities for Nicole and her family in Ireland. Well, there's, there's some great national parks. Like, again, I'm, I don't want to go back to Donegal again, but Glenvay National Park up in Donegal. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful park for nice hikes and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have some beautiful beaches around the Antrim coast and Donegal as well. Mm-hmm. How old are the children? Uh, five and ten. All right. Yes, every every town in Ireland is going to have activities. Like, there's going to be all sorts of... And I don't just mean, like, swimming pools and that, but there's going to be, like, everywhere now has got a climbing wall or there's archery centres or all sorts of parks. There's a great one outside Dublin now, which is called Tato Park, which has got... You can swing from trees and... In the middle of Ireland, there at Burr Castle, they have the biggest tree house in the world has just been built. Where's that? It's in County Offaly in the middle of Ireland, which you probably would never have gone to other than the fact that the biggest tree house in the world is there. And it just looks unbelievable. County Offaly. Yeah. uh, My only regret is that I've just turned 40, but if I was 10 years of age, I'd be straight there (laughs) and in that tree house. This thing is absolutely ginormous. That is something to put on the map, yeah. Absolutely. And if you're in in Dublin, uh, our national stadium, the Crow Park Stadium, where we play our Gaelic games, you can do a tour of that and the kids can get to play some of the games. They'll teach them a bit of the Gaelic football or the, mm. the Irish hurling. That's might a, enjoy that. You know, that's a, a hit. Every time I'm in Dublin with a group, we all just line up to grab that bat and hit the yeah. and do a little hurling. That's it. And it's been overtaken by what is now one of the number one tourist attractions in Dublin. Wait for this one. The National Leprechaun Museum. Oh, it no. is, it really? is the number one attraction <laughs> in Dublin for the last several years. And what is that? It's just a homage to the leprechaun. Uh, yeah. You walk inside and they have this big room that where all the furniture is like 20 times bigger than it should be, so then you feel like well, a leprechaun. You just feel like a leprechaun. This is perfect. What yeah, a clever it's really, idea. Really popular with families, obviously. And then, but also a lot of people go there because they have some features on the culture of the leprechaun and where all these uh, fairies and mystical parts of our ancient heritage came from. So they kind of explain that. But a lot of people just go there just for this ginormous furniture. There you go, Nicole. There's some good ideas for traveling with kids in Ireland. That's great. We'll check out the, the treehouse and, and the Leprechaun Museum. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Happy travels and good for you taking your kids to Ireland. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking Ireland with Pascal Fitzpatrick and Stephen McPhillamy. You guys, I'd like to close just by something new or fun that you've experienced in the area of uh, live music or sports uh, for our travelers to consider. Well, I've enjoyed a new museum in the middle of Dublin called Epic Ireland, which is a tribute to Irish people all over the world, where we've gone and settled and what their descendants have done. And basically, it's a homage to the Irish diaspora all over the world. And it really Ireland is quite a diaspora. What is it? Well, how many people on the island? Uh, about six million in total. Six million? And I'm including Northern Ireland there, okay, of course. Yeah. But uh, I think there must be about 50 million people wi- worldwide with Irish heritage. I think yeah. there's at least 40 in the U.S. Uh, Who have US done some interesting things outside of Ireland. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So this museum is now a tribute to them. All right. Pascal? The Titanic Museum up in Belfast there, it's after getting a big accolade. It's been voted the best tourist destination in Europe. And is there a related uh, museum down in Cork? There's one in, uh, in Cove as well, yeah. That'd in be Cove, a, in Cove, that's Cove, right. Cove and Cork, yeah. Next to Cork, the Cove on the south coast. And that was... Uh, it, it was called Queenstown at one time. That's, and the, that's where the Titanic actually left from. So that if, you can, if you're in the south, you can learn about the Titanic in Cove. Yeah. And, then, and in the north, of course, Belfast has the best. And that's this the uh, award-winning Center. Titanic Center. One thing to look out for in the next Star Wars movie, Dingle is going to be featured because the Jedi village was built on the Dingle Peninsula. You're aware of this? No. Yeah, the last Star Wars movie... Luke Skywalker will be missing for 20 years and the, the new young Jedi, she finds him. Where has he been hiding? Of course, off the Dingle Peninsula on Skellig Michael. So you had um, Ryan's daughter 
had we, far and far away. away. And now we have Star Wars. And, now and have Star Wars is going to really impact on Dingle. I went to the pub one night with my Irish wolfhound because I take him with me so that I don't end up in the nightclub. And um, all the stars walked in from Star Wars and it was the weirdest, coolest vibe because I'm a Star Wars fan. <laughs> and they started ordering lots of drinks and the next thing, a hundred big English guys walked in and I said, I know who you are. You're the Stormtroopers. And they're like, yeah, we're the Stormtroopers. <laughs> they were the extras. And then this big seven foot two guy from Finland walks in, Chewbacca. <laughs> So we got to meet them. Or having you drinks. got to meet the whole gang, yeah, the whole crew in Little Dingle every night for two mo- for almost two months, and they would be they were filming battle scenes. So all the restaurants in Dingle would reopen at midnight yeah. to feed the crew, the cast, and the directors oh. of Star Wars. So this will be big news for oh, people. It's going to be enormous. Yeah, lots of change in Ireland. All right, may the force be with you. May the force be with you all over the Emerald Isle. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Dana Bublitz. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, You'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.